0: earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. with two experts in chronic pain, David Hanscom and Les Aria. This podcast will show you how to unlock your body's ability to heal, just breathe, and learn how to rewire your brain and break free from chronic pain. Welcome to
1: Dynamic Healing Podcast. I'm Les Aria.
0: And I'm David Hanscom.
1: And today, folks, here's the title of today's um, discussion is, Is Emotional Pain Equal to Physical Pain? So the purpose of today's podcast is to really answer this question. It's an old, old question. Is emotional pain equal to physical pain? Now, our goal today is to address that, and especially the role of emotions in our everyday experiences, especially its role in persistent pain.
2: So I'd like to read a quote today. It's from Brene Brown, who I'm a huge fan of. It's always less. And here's her quote. All the stuff that keeps you safe from feeling scary emotions... They also keep you from feeling the good emotions. So the bottom line is, you can't control your emotions. Is what she's really saying, right, Les?
1: Right. She's exactly saying that, and you know that that quote is really powerful. David, can you read it again so we all can really catch it one more time because it's really loaded. Well,
2: all the stuff that keeps you feeling safe from feeling scary emotions, they also keep you from feeling the good emotion. Keep you from feeling the good emotions.
1: Yeah. So that basically says that the more protective you are of not wanting to feel or to deal, it also keeps you from living life. As David and I would say, it keeps you from moving towards what matters the most to you in life.
2: Is it the same way I was saying if you have to feel to heal? It matters. is.
1: That, that really is, isn't it, David? And we'll get, we'll get more into that, as David has pointed out. So I thought maybe it might be good for us, David, to start with some basic stuff, like what are emotions... Um, because we use this thing interchangeably sometimes. Um, sometimes when we say emotions, we mean thoughts, and sometimes when we mean thoughts, we mean emotions. And let me throw in another one and make it complex, being the psychologist I am. You know, like the difference between emotions and feelings. I think we need to kind of lay down some basics like that before we kind of address, you know, is emotional pain equal to physical pain? So let me just kind of kick that off, folks. Emotions, what are Emotions. If you actually stop and think about it, nope, let's scratch that. If you stop and feel about that, meaning that emotions are really sensory input from the brain and we need the body to be able to experience this. And so if you think about emotions, they're really sensory experiences that are encoded in the brain and then translated into the body. Now, if you go one step further, David and I will probably agree on this. David, you can correct me on this one is because thoughts or emotions and emotions are in thoughts. It's, you know, we tend to separate things a lot. In cognitive behavioral therapy, they tend to say your thinking influences your feelings and your feelings influences your behaviors. And David's had a lot of experience and is kind of an expert on that um, with one of his gurus and mentors who taught um, CBT. And uh, hopefully you'll share that, David. But coming back to this is... Very often, psychologists look at things from thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. What we really want to communicate with you today is this, is that it's actually part and parcel. It's it's not so much thoughts and emotions. It's all kind of like that. And David, what's, it's, I think it's called the Russian doll, where it's kind of embedded in each other. And I think that's what it really is. But for, for language today, I just want us to know that it's about sensory experiences. David? Well, I have
2: a little different take on this. I mean, first of all, it's interesting that I'm talking about emotions because, you know, surgeons aren't really known for that word. We don't really acknowledge that. word. <laughs> That's true. Emotions, what are you talking about?
1: So folks, we're in, we're in for entertainment right now. That David's going to talk about emotions. So.
2: <laughs> anyway, here's the deal. So I've thought, I've, thought, I've thought about this every day. We have this model called dynamic healing. We have the input of your stresses. You have your nervous system, and then you have the output, which is your body's physiology. The physiology can be either safe or threat physiology. So threat physiology is fight or flight. You feel anxious and upset. And so from my perspective, emotions are what you feel. So if you feel safe and relaxed, like my cat does in my lap right now, um, her emotions is safety, contentment, relaxation. And if somebody's threatening you, you feel tense, anxious, um, afraid, whatever you want to call it. So emotions is that physiological sensation that you feel. Right Thoughts to me are the input. So thoughts come in and I call it the curse of consciousness is that unpleasant thoughts come in your nervous system and your body interprets these thoughts the same way as um, a physical threat. So to me, the thoughts are the sensory input that create the physiological response. And then we know that repressed thoughts or suppressed thoughts are actually even more toxic to the brain than expressed ones. Yeah. Right? I just look at a paper this morning that shows that thought suppression actually shrinks the hippocampus of the brain. That's your memory center of the brain is actually shrunk in people with thought suppression. So what happens again, thoughts are input, your emotions are the output, the emotions are what you feel. That that's my breakdown of
1: it. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. And then let's kind of let's kind of look at this?
2: What do you mean what do you mean just pretty good?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. It was. Um, I, thought I'm sorry. was
2: well, I thought that was brilliant.
1: David, uh, how are we feeling today? <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> well, do we I'm, to relax, just from a nap. I, I figured I can handle you today. So that's why we'll be the podcast now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Come on, big guy. You know you can handle emotions, <laughs> the big surgeon that you are. Listen, so let's let's get back on this again. So uh, I, I do agree. Emotions are sort of this input that you receive. So one of the things is brain science shows this. And so that um, when you actually experience emotions, Damasio and Ledoux, two famous world renowned um, neuroscientists, Damasio really talks about the difference between emotions and feelings. And this kind of ties into a lot of research we know about what happens when you label feelings. So let's walk this back a little bit. Emotions sort of sensory input. And David gave you his take on it. Demacia oh, says no, I mean yeah.
2: seriously see. I mean to me the emotions of the sensory is the body's output, the physiology.
1: Well, that, that's what that's exactly what um, we'll be getting into. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's well, a, the
2: thoughts being the input and the physiology being
1: the output. Right? So it, yes, well, uh, th- that's a great point. So let's kind of look at it this way. Sometimes we're conscious of our thoughts and sometimes we're not. Correct. And when you're conscious of our thoughts, your model works really well. However, when thoughts, and we're not aware of our thoughts, what we tend to experience is stuff in the body. And so this is why your physiological states determines your psychological states and bidirectionally, directionally when you have thoughts about, oh my gosh, I've got to do this, I've got to walk, this is a difficult bill, this is a difficult conversation, your thoughts consciously, that input can create the emotions. Right. So what we want to leave our audience here is, is that, David is absolutely correct, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, He he likes hearing. He likes hearing that. Um,
2: You feel okay, Leslie? You you feel? Do you feel some pain while you just said that?
1: A a little bit of pain, but I'm feeling. I'm feeling it my in my chest right now. (laughs) All right. On a serious note, come on. So on a serious note, so your physiological states, which is basically the unconscious part of your brain that kind of monitors danger and threat, um, actually influences your thinking and emotions we also have, when we have thoughts and we have something that we don't want to deal with, or we, we're having memories of things, or we we intentionally think of something like, I don't want to deal with this, that can change your physiology. So your physio states influences your psycho states. Your psychostates can also influence your physiological states. That's the point.
2: Right. Well, I mean, we, we, this is what you've taught me is that your physiological state determines your psychological state. So, thoughts can create a, create create up a physiology. Yep. But again, psychological state's a big word. Yes. When your physiology is in threat, fight or flight, correct. Your brain throws off inflammatory cytokines. Your brain's actually inflamed. It changes yep. the blood supply to the, the distribution of the blood supply to the brain. Mm-hmm. And what happens, you start, these thoughts start going crazy. Yeah. It's very, very bi-directional. And so, We'll talk a little bit later about obsessive compulsive disorder, which you know is two parts. Yeah. Of there's the thoughts, then the reaction. Mm-hmm. They're very much linked to each other. But I'd like to go into what you just have laid out in front of us, as far as the outline about that emotional pain and physical pain are really processed the same way in the body. Yeah. And I'll start this research study by Daniel Wien Eisenberg, which is classic.
1: Mm-hmm. But there's
2: other ones that support it. Is where they had a volunteer in a computer in a um, research MRI scan then the volunteer was playing a simulated computer game with the three people. In other words, they were were playing ball with each other, passing it on the computer. So the participant pushed a button and then they they would throw the ball back to another person. So the participant, the volunteer, was a participant in this three-way game of catch. Then what was pre-programmed is that all of a sudden the participant was excluded from playing catch. So just two people back and forth. Mm-hmm. And what happened in every volunteer, the pain center of the brain, the, the unpleasant emotional center of the brain, lit up every time. The same area that lights up in chronic pain, which is not just one spot by the way. I mean, the brain is complicated. Yes. The area of the brain connected with chronic pain responses lit up, just is the computer game of feeling socially rejected. But there's lots of other studies that shows emotional pain. Well, let's put it this way: mental threats are perceived the same way as physical threats. And the physiological response is the same. So all of a sudden you feel excluded. And so I do think that, I don't know if it's worth talking about it too much, but you talk about feelings and thoughts, which to me are the same thing. Those are input. Then your body's physiology is the output. So if you feel rejected, bam, your body goes into fight or flight. So that's the problem that humans have is that my cat gets threatened by a dog, game over once the dog is gone she lays down and goes to sleep right humans have these thoughts that continue to torture us endlessly that we can't escape so emotions hurt i mean you hurt my feelings you broke my heart right some other sayings that might reflect that so people don't want to feel pain they don't want to feel emotional pain or they don't want to feel physical pain they just don't want to feel it so that's why we spend so much time avoiding unpleasant emotions because they actually don't feel very good.
1: They don't. And that's, and that's absolutely right. Eisenberg's studies um, have really just kind of shifted the way um, people have thought about it. However, I'm sad that not enough therapists, psychologists, physicians, um, allied, other allied health professionals have not looked at this and say, you know, so this is just, just the way you said it, that, they're really saying where they have shared emotions and physical circuitry share. And if we want to be a visual, this is the visual I'd give everyone is, you know, as if you walk into a pantry and, and you open up the pantry and the different shelves, emotions are in one shelf and, you know, physical sensations, the way it's processed is in one shelf, but it's in the same pantry. There's sh- shared circuitries. And I like what David said, really, just to emphasize that. The complexity of the brain and how we experience emotions and physical pain and even trauma is so complex. But what we do know now more and more is that when someone rejects you and when you reject you, think about that. Right, exactly. There's an, there's an embodied pain. There's an experience of this. Now, I want to pause you for just a second and kind of make clear. Now, according to Damasio, again, a world-renowned neuroscientist. Phenomenal work. Great. He read any of his books. He's written multiple books. And Ledoux is another one, a uh, very famous neuroscientist. Here's what I like what these two guys say. demasio really emphasizes this. When the brain experiences emotions, this is his, his interpretation. When the brain experiences emotions, meaning that the physiological states, somehow the brain senses danger or an experience, it pulls from past encoded information coupled with your current judgments and then by the way just to let you know science shows that when you look at someone or something you already have made a decision it's half a minute it's half a, a second that's like 500 milliseconds you made a decision and it's because it's based on past experiences this is how fast the brain operates now demasio says when you experience emotions in the brain it doesn't become a feeling until you label it so meaning that the, when you label, I am feeling sad or scared, they noticed that demasio's work and Ledoux's work and others have found that your right prefrontal cortex lights up when we label emotions. And check this out, David, when you label emotions, meaning that when you, when you experience something and you're starting to experience it in the body because the brain has sent information down to the body, when you start to experience it and then you label it like I think this is what it is, the right front part of the brain lights up, and then this is the cool part, it. Audience, you're going to love this. When you label it, you tame it, which means that when you can identify what you're feeling, it actually has a direct line, like a red phone line. Just think about the front part of the brain, picks up a point and says, we're good, all is well. This is a familiar experience. It sends it down to the amygdala circuitry where all the emotions are and experiences are encoded.
2: So that, I mean, people don't like in some ways how we sort of make this whole brain thing so empirical, but it is. We're programmed by the past. We don't have to learn every time we walk by a stove not to touch the hot burner. We learn that from the past. We don't eat food that's rotten. We um, gravitate towards things we like. So everything we do today is based on our past experience, but what we learned. Again, when you have this whole world of consciousness compared to our physical world, why it's really, really hard to navigate. So the thing is that once you remember something that this word anxiety is really what my entire process is snuck over to. And so when you're in fight or flight, your body's full of these stress chemicals, reactivity, and you feel agitated, anxious, and it's just a word that describes your neurochemical state. So it's a driving force behind a lot of behaviors because people do anything not to feel this unpleasant physiology. Yep. So the dysfunctional psychological diagnoses are driven by an activated nervous system. As we've discussed before, we try to get rid of that word anxiety and say the word activated nervous system. Yeah. It's a driving force behind a lot of psychology. But again, going back to one of the basic premises of this whole conversation, that your physiological state, i.e. fight or flight, inflamed, high metabolism, high fuel consumption state, Changes the way you think about everything. And then you also made another major point is that it's when you give meaning to these sensations that become embedded in your brain. And that's one of the reasons why this thing we call the ironic effect is so powerful. Because the more of a meaning, well meaning, well intentioned person you are, conscientious, you give meaning to negative thoughts that a lot of people just ignore. So remember, it's when you give meaning to a thought. And have, or that emotion or the sensation, you give meaning to it. It's just a survival reaction. Right. If we just looked at it as a survival reaction, you don't have to give meaning to it. It's not who you are. It's what you have to survive, but it's not who you are. So one of the basic things that we do in our work is that we take this chemical reaction that humans have called anxiety. Again, we're trying to get rid of that word. So we have this activated nervous system. The way you solve the problem is is that you just learn how to calm down this nervous system so we try, trying, trying to make these survival sensations empirical, dispassionate. It's what you have, not who you are. Then the psychology comes more into the conscious brain. so As you learn to process this physiology in a spot that's relatively safe, then your conscious brain can thrive. And you talk about this term embodied cognition. So if your brain's being battered by these neurochemical reactions that are powerful, much stronger than the conscious brain, You've got to separate your identity from this reaction in order to heal. So again, emotional pain can often feel as strong as physical pain. None of us want to hurt. So we spend a good part of our life avoiding these feelings, suppressing them, repressing them. We have lots of dysfunctional behaviors to distract ourselves from them. So it hurts. We don't like pain, emotional or physical, and they really are the same thing. It's really quite a difficult part of the human experience.
1: It really is. And you mentioned the word embodied cognition. Um, This is a um, it's not really a new field of research. It's now becoming more into the light. And a lot of clinicians and um, physicians are now paying attention to this. Let's kind of talk about something called embodied cognition. and Then we'll circle back around about that question. Is emotional um, pain equal to physical pain? So what is embodied cognition? So, David, um, this is taken from the study and the writings of um, Thomas uh, Rittenbaugh and Nichter in 2009. They kind of described this. So, what is embodied cognition? So, check this out. Let me give you an example. Now, imagine the sound of a dentist drill. Ooh, that triggers specific bodily sensations, just even thinking about it, right? Or thinking about a lemon. And you know, and being squeezed, uh, you know, inside your mouth, and all the juices. Now, think about that—a task that you want to engage in, but you're fearing the pain. Here's what embodied cognition says: that the embodied cognition says that there are many features of cognition, and they're shaped by our lived experiences and our integrated body sensory information from the brain, and then. The body takes all this information from the brain, sends it back up. Now, at that point, how you respond to what shows up in the body, this is the interpretation perception part. This is the front part of the brain. If you label it as, yes, this is what anger feels like in my body. You will notice the effects. You will notice the effects not to be as strong compared to someone who resists or fights or fears the body sensations. That includes persistent pain. And people with trauma and persistent pain, when they actually feel sensations in their body, they get freaked out because they're trying to figure out how do I run from this? Or as David says, it's like trying to pull your hands away from a hot stove, but you're kind of stuck there. When you start to look and experience this differently, it starts to reshape the way your brain has an opinion about the sensations in your body. So one more time is this, if you think about a dentist drill, it tends to evoke physiological reactions. That influences your psychology, as David would say. And that in turn, how, when that shows up and you become very aware called perception, how you relate to it in that moment can be the epitome of neuroplasticity. So this is why David and I are very big, and we've said this before in other programs, we're not trying to say talk therapy doesn't work. That's not what David, it was clear in the last program, the program before that, I was clear on that. We're saying is for people to heal, it requires you to relate differently to what shows up in the body. Thoughts show up in the body. Emotions show up in the body. And so therefore, when we're trying to run from these things, it actually creates more of a habit in the brain. And this becomes encoded in our default mode.
2: So this is interesting because if you come from a traumatic background, a lot of things were dangerous. They were. And I'm just, I keep hearing stories of trauma. That they're just unspeakable trauma. I mean, there's so much childhood trauma on this planet It's unbelievable. And the severity of the trauma is unbelievable. So of course, if you have a father who did some really bad things to you as a kid, as soon as you see your father or hear his voice, guess what? Your body's going to react right? That's what you're saying, right? That's well said. Yeah. Okay. So that's the part that's so tricky. I mean, dental drill is sort of a universal thing. So when I think of my father, that doesn't happen. When I think of my mother, mm-hmm. that reaction occurs. So when you talk about a dental drill, you must be thinking of my mother's voice. That's, that's, the same. that's what you're saying. That's, right? that's
1: exactly. It. It's encoded. It's embedded. And anyone who comes close to your mother's voice, David. Right will evoke those physiological sensations in the body. And we're, here's the crazy thing, folks. David has talked about the unconscious mind in that sense. What we call it mind of brain, here's this. The unconscious part is basically is when we get evoked with these sensations in the body, often we're not thinking about a thought. And David might not be thinking about his mom, just to kind of use it as an example. But when someone comes close to mimicking the essence of that voice, it, the brain remembers and we experience this um, ab reaction. We experience this intense emotions and we tend to get really fearful and we become those emotions because we're not able to separate from what just showed up.
2: Well, but here's a part where repro, repro- programming comes into place because, okay, this person's not my mother. There's some actions that resemble my mother's actions. My body is a unit, both brain and body are reacting as a unit so, and it doesn't feel very good. So, again, we spend a lot of time avoiding avoidance behavior, avoiding situations that resemble our past, those uncomfortable. Um, or, friends, let's say you broke up, say you had a bad relationship and you just got dumped. And you've heard situations where people say, Well, I'm just never going to get into a relationship again. And they don't. And so, you know, life is full of failures and it's tragic that, okay, you had a relationship that worked really well, it was mm-hmm. great, and you got dumped. You weren't physically hurt but you're emotionally hurt, and it does hurt badly. Yeah. So then you develop this fear of pain. You get in this fear of avoidance behavior. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. Right. But with humans with their emotional, I'm sorry, with their consciousness, which is so complex that with avoidance behavior, your life starts getting really small. So let's have a term, which I think is really intriguing, of uh, psychological flexibility.
1: Yeah psychological flexibility is basically learning to be fully it's coming into awareness being just really aware of what's showing up as opposed to you know trying to push it away as i call tug of war with the mind right david so when to to be psychological flexible let me give you visuals because i like metaphors and visuals because it helps me it helps me understand concepts and be able to help communicate to my patient to myself if you think of a palm tree if you think of all in Florida when. The hurricanes hit and um, if you think about the palm tree it's deeply rooted in who they are and it's flexible during the worst worst storms that's what psychological flexibility is not about liking it wanting it or disagreeing with whatever is showing up it's about like this is full radical acceptance and not but and let me open up to the experience and opening up to something uncomfortable in your body in small small bites you need a therapist sometimes to work with this psychologist. And you wanna open up to sensations and learn how to slowly dip your toe, your ankle, your knees, your hips, your legs, and then finally your body. And part of learning how to show up to difficult emotions will help reprogram, retune, recalibrate your nervous system. And that's the neuroplasticity. But the problem with what with all of us is that we don't want to hurt, like David said. We um, we want the good stuff, but not uh, not the bad stuff. And that's normal. That's human. However, if you have trauma, chronic pain, just chronic stress, learning how to relate differently to what shows up is the psychological flexibility. So I'd like to
2: finish off with a metaphor that we talked about last week. And to me, it's become more and more relevant. And again, I'm open to suggestions of better ones. But basically, um, you know, your final point here is you have to feel to heal. In other words, can fight or flight you feel anxious agitated whatever you just don't feel good and you're not supposed to feel good and that's not going to go away so what you need to feel and as you point out the word pendulation mm-hmm. if you allow yourself to feel pain in small doses eventually it becomes a non-issue what we tend to do like for, for instance with a small kid feels anxious or frustrated basically we're taught to suppress it you know yeah. man right up, woman up you know whatever it is just be tough, don't complain. That's how we teach kids how to cope because these massive reactions that are uncomfortable, they hurt and nobody, nobody knows what to do with them. So we become experts at dysfunctional coping skills, right? Yeah. Wow. So we, keep, we keep treating stress psychologically and we don't get it in terms of the body's physiology. Yes. Remember, pain is just a signal. It's that emotional reaction we call anxiety. That's your body's interpretation of that signal. How we show up or not is really where the suffering comes in. So we've called, talked about the term "pain is inevitable, suffering is optional." Well, it's only optional if you know what to do. If you don't want to, if you don't know what to do, suffering is also inevitable. So the metaphor I have, I've said, I've said for a long time, you have to dig deeper to reach higher. And so the metaphor to me is a redwood tree which has deep roots, but they also combined with other roots of redwood trees to create a very stable root base. And so what happens is your past is the fertile soil for your future growth. And so digging deeper, as you dig into it and and understand it, we spend time suppressing it, being ashamed of it, trying to rewrite it, trying to analyze it, which takes a lot of energy and nothing changes. And so by digging into it and being with it and using it for growth, That's money, right? Yeah. So so that's that's the key by learning to be with your past. But the thing that's really sad for me is that in medicine, for a lot of physicians, I can't speak for everybody, of course, but we sort of had the impression, well, people in pain can't see what's going on. It must be faking it. It must be psychological, this, this, and this. And we don't have much compassion for people that are in pain. It's a problem because we label them and then you feel more and more trapped. So what I learned from this lecture a few weeks ago from Dr. Abbas is that a lot of people, actually including myself historically, have so much trauma, it's so painful that they have no place to engage. In other words, even the smallest exposure to the past is just brutal, they can't tolerate it. So it's not that they don't want to heal, they just can't. So they shut down. So Dr. Bass has this thing called Intermediate Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy which we'll talk about another day. And sort of the work that you do also less that you learn in small bits, yeah. teach people how to feel safe. So I just ask you the final question here, as far as just the approach, not the details of it, but just your approach. You 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 have a lot of people that are really traumatized. You hear this much more than I do. So I come to your office, really tough. I don't trust anybody, nor should I. And What's your general initial approach to get people feeling safe?
1: Great. Yeah. One of the first things is just to notice simple tension in the body. Just just to kind of acclimate to everyday tension and just to notice it. And in fact, even before, David, before um, uh, we were, um, before the pandemic, one of the things I used to do is I'll sometimes um, get people um, hooked up with my biofeedback equipment And just to monitor their heart rate and their temperature and all that stuff. And one of the things I I do is without even telling them what I'm doing is I ask them to look around the room and and to find something neutral. And then to basically look at the object, take three breaths and then come back into the body. So it's a very gentle pendulation. I get people to orient to things. So I'll give you an example. So David, if you looked around the room, it's called orienting. It's a somatic experience, um, experiencing intervention. It's called orienting. Sometimes we're so in our head, we don't know there's something in the room. you're like, but, but this is my room. I know the objects. Actually, did you actually take a look at the objects? So one way to get people comfortable is start orienting to what is around you. So David, you'd look around the room, identify three objects. And then you look at the object, uh, why I do it is, let's just say you look at a mirror, I'm looking at a mirror across my wall, and I take a look at that, and I take three gentle breaths. And then i look at the next object, take three gentle breaths, I'll basically look at it, and I'm just staring at it with a soft gaze. And then I come back in, what I've done is I've got whatever was going on inside of them to settle down. And then when they come back in, it's a little bit, they feel a little bit safer to notice what is showing up in their body. And that's how we kind of start. And then being able to just notice it and label it. I use a technique called, um, you know, different techniques, like we use the three C's and a variety of other skills. Ultimately, is it's about dipping your toe in slowly to feeling. Think of the pool as emotions. You're just dipping slowly. But some of us, some of us need more help than others. But for the most of us, if we can just start to not fight with what shows up and relate differently. It actually helps the healing.
2: Yeah, no, it was very sobering when we realize how traumatized people really are. And again, this summarized in today's talk is that emotional pain hurts. It's processed in the same region and areas of the brain as physical pain. Humans with a consciousness have a lot of complexity. And thoughts are sensory input that we can't escape. And they create physiology that's unpleasant. We call it anxiety. But then that unpleasant physiology creates thoughts that are also unpleasant. So it's a bi-directional process, one works off the other. And we're gonna talk about OCD in some more detail, um, but you have to deal with the thoughts and the heated up nervous system to actually solve the problem. So even severe anxiety disorders like OCD, bipolar um, anxiety disorders are, are solvable once you learn how to turn down the heat and how to divert the thoughts. And it just it's not about fixing or solving, it's how you change your relationship to them and how to process. So, Dr. Arya, thank you for the afternoon, and uh, this is interesting stuff. I mean, for me personally, it hits home pretty hard because I had a tough background, but when I hear some of these trauma stories, mine isn't nearly as tough as a lot of people's trauma.
1: Yeah, and David, like I said, um, whether it's small trauma, small T's, large traumas, the bottom line is this, is we need to learn how to deal with this, as you said, relate create this new relationship with what shows up, because what shows up is no, really not uh, our doing, it's just the nervous system, it's the brain. But how we show up to what showed up, that's key. I wanna kinda of mention this, is that um, emotional wounds often are not visible. And right. so they're not visible. So I just want people to know that. So with that said, David, we start this show with, uh, you know, is emotional pain equal to physical pain? Let me leave the audience with this question. How about you make your own decision, regardless of what data is out there, you decide, because you're the final judge, jury, and the evidence is there. You figure it out. You've heard from David and myself, and we hope that you will be kind to yourself and lots of love in your healing journey. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Hanscom. Thanks, Les. We'll see you soon. Take care.
0: David and Les would love to hear
1: from you about today's podcast and any ideas for future topics. You can email them at david-less at com. That's david-less at com.
0: Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw. And on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind, Body, Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcast.